Now, if you would take a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Kings, we are studying the life of Elijah this spring on Sunday nights, and it's going to take us uh, through sections of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings here in this spring. Um, tonight, we're looking at chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. Verses 20 through 40. It is the confrontation between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah. Before I read God's word for us this evening, let us ask for his help in prayer again. Please join me in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It is true. And it is for our good. It is for our sanctification. It is for our growth in holiness. It is for an encouragement. It is for our comfort, our rebuke, our correction, our training in righteousness. So we come with humble hearts and we bow before your revelation as it is recorded for us here in Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that it would make us into better worshipers, and it would make us into better roommates, students, into better husbands, fathers, wives and mothers, brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would be more Christ-like because your word is at work in our hearts and it would be evident in our lives. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Kings 18, verse 20 through 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets to gather at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that if I have done all these things at your word, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, after a year away, March Madness is back. And the tournament has gotten off to a mad start. This year is shaping up to be a memorable tournament. Maybe it will be as memorable as the tournament in 1983, the championship game there. It was a really memorable tournament. I was only like a month old, and I remember it. That year was one of the greatest basketball upsets in all of basketball history. It was the Houston Cougars and the North Carolina State Wolfpack. And the Cougars were the clear favorites. They were the number one ranked team for most of the season. They came into the tournament on a 26-game winning streak. The nickname of that team was Phi Slamma Jamma because of their fast-paced, high-flying style of play. They were led by two future NBA legends, most of you should know these people if you're a basketball fan, Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. The underdog, the NC State Wolfpack, their record was 26-10, and 10, respectable but not great. They were the sixth seed in the tournament, one of the six seeds. And in the championship game, the Wolfpack went toe-to-toe -to -toe all game with the Cougars. And with the game on the line, it was tied 52-all. Houston had the ball with less than five seconds left, and Derek Wittenberg attempted either what was a long shot or a risky pass. And Lorenzo Charles grabbed it and dunked it as the final buzzer sounded. You've seen this highlight, and you'll see it when they play one shining moment at the end of this tournament. They show it every year. The underdog, NC State, pulled off one of the greatest upsets in the NCAA tournament. From man's perspective, Elijah is the underdog atop Mount Carmel. There is one Elijah facing off against 450 prophets of Baal. 
There had been an altar to the Lord, but it had been torn, torn down. And the history of Mount Carmel is that it actually had a, a long history with Baal worship. It was pretty much home field advantage for the prophets of Baal. No one was picking Elijah in their prophet's back bracket. But Elijah did not see himself as an underdog. No. And he doesn't act like he's an underdog. He acts like he's the favorite. He lets the prophets of Baal choose their bull. And then he, he insists that they go first. Just think about that for a moment. The true God is the one who answers by fire. What if they, by just accident, conjure something up? What if, by some strange coincidence, lightning strikes? He lets them go first. Elijah is courageous and confident in this showdown because it's not just a contest between prophets. It's a contest to show which is the real God. Who is the real God is the main question of the text. It's asked in different ways at least five times in the text. In verse 21, 24, 36, 37, and 39. Elijah knows the answer, and it's going to be made clear to everyone there on the mountain. Elijah is courageous because he knows the God he serves is the real God. So therefore, though others may think he's the underdog, he knows he is not. I want us to consider our passage tonight under three headings. In verses 20 through 21, I want us to look at confronting compromise. Confronting compromise. Then in verses 22 through 37, I want us to consider a contrast in the offerings. A contrast in the offerings. And then lastly, I want us to see consecration through sacrifice. Consecration through sacrifice in verses 38 through 40. Confronting compromise in verses 20 through 21. Here, prior to what we have here, there's the squaring off between Ahab and Elijah. That has set the stage. Ahab is the, the wicked king. He has led God's people into idolatry. He has tolerated and promoted it. And now, as the confrontation begins, Elijah, before he turns to the prophets of Baal, he turns to the Israelites. And he confronts the nation. And what does he tell them in verse 21? Look back there about the middle of the verse. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? This tells us something about the nation and their spiritual condition at the time. They have not fully abandoned the worship of the Lord, but they haven't fully given themselves to Baal. They're going back and forth, but in doing so, it's something of a, of a limp. They want to be on the winning side. What's at stake is, well, they want to serve whichever God will bring them rain. This is a time of, of famine. Now, Elijah is the one who's called for the famine, according to God's word, that he has said, your people aren't serving you, so withhold the rain in order that their hearts might be turned back to you. But the people don't see it the way that Elijah sees it. They see it as, well, maybe Baal, the, the god of the storm, the Canaanite fertility God, maybe that's our answer in this famine. Or maybe it's the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know he can do miraculous things. They're limping between the two. Their allegiance is compromised. They are literally fair-weather fans. In the world of sports rivalries, you must pick a side. At some point, you choose an allegiance and you stick to it. In baseball, you can't be a Cubs fan and a Cardinals fan, a Yankees fan and a Red Sox fan. In football, you can't be devoted to the Bears and the Packers. In pro basketball, you're not a true Celtics fan if you like the Lakers. A longtime Pistons fan will not cheer for the Bulls. It can't be roll tide and go Tigers. It can't be go green and go blue. It can't be both. Pick a side. Elijah confronts Israel's fair-weatherness their compromised allegiance. But we may not understand the appeal to Baal worship. Let's give a a little bit of, of, of time to consider what was the appeal. Ralph Davids calls it, what is the Canaanite apologetics? Why would an Israelite be attracted to Baal worship in the first place? Well, what we've seen here in our look at Elijah is that the first thing is that Baal worship came under royal sanction. It came into the kingdom and it's been a, a, a threat to God's people in the land for many years now, but here particularly through Ahab marrying a, a pagan wife, Jezebel. And now Ahab wanting to please his wife has, has given it royal sanction there in Israel in the northern kingdom. And so what is the lure? Well, it's the persuasiveness of power. If they get along with Baal worship, then they're on the side of power there in northern Israel. But also, Baal worship, the second thing is that it had a a long tradition. It was in the land long before the Israelites were in the land. For their day, it had some respectability about it. It went back hundreds of years. So there was something to be said that, yes, they had served Yahweh, the the God of the Bible, but here's also another competing religion that has quite a pedigree in their culture and the cultures around them. Well, there's also the relevance of Baal worship. It appealed to their felt needs, what they thought they needed. That's the third thing. It's relevance. You're a farmer, you're waiting for rain for your crops. Baal is supposed to be the fertility god. Why not give him a chance or at least keep your options open? Then the fourth thing that we see in Baal worship is that uh, it appeals to a sensual side. Baal worship included many sexual rituals in its cult. And so it would lure potentially Israelites away, those who, according to the law of Moses, were bound in marriage for sexual expression. Well, for the worshiper of Baal, if things weren't really too going too well in your marriage, it's okay. You could just meet your needs other ways at the, the cult temple. Here we see in Baal worship, it, it offers what the world has to offer the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 1 John 2, 16. 
But we know that whoever loves the world does not have the love of the Father in them. 1 John 2.15. And the people are limping between the two. Their allegiance is compromised and Elijah is confronting it. What would compromised allegiance look like today? Well, quite often today, it, it takes on two expressions I would put forward. One is syncretism. Syncretism, maybe this is what some of the, the Jews were, were doing. It's the blending of religions. It's, I like this from Hinduism. I like this from Buddhism. I like this from this self-help book I read or from this YouTuber or from this. And I like this aspect of Christianity and blending them together. That's compromised allegiance. The other expression of compromised allegiance in, among the church today is religious progressivism. Religious progressivism. This is the notion that we'll keep the name of our religion, we'll keep the brand of Christianity, but we'll update it according to the times. We'll update it according to the, the needs of the day, to the questions of the day. And so we will make appropriate changes. We don't want to throw out everything about it, but basically anything's on the table based on the desires of the culture around us. But there can only be one true God. So a blending or a changing of what he has revealed is not an option. We don't get to decide what it means to be devoted to him. But we must serve him on his terms. And that's what Elijah demands of the Israelites. That they follow the real God. Back in verse 21, after he says, how long are you limping between two different opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He calls him on it. He says, no more waffling. Choose which God is the real God and serve that God. What you believe should matter and it should be evident. As Ralph Davis has put it, theology leads to discipleship. God is not an idea you play with, but a king to whom you submit. It's not just getting theology right, but then it's applying it to whom you serve tomorrow at 10. And who you serve throughout the week. The evidence and the fruit of your life bears testimony to your theological allegiance. God is not an idea you play with, but a king to whom you submit. And from confronting the people, he then goes to confront the prophets. And in doing so, he says, we're both going to offer up these offerings to God. And that's verses 22 through 37. We see a contrast, an offering. Now, it was important that things came to a head in this way. After several years of famine, of there being no rain, Several years of drought. God could have sent rain, but he didn't want the rain to be mistakenly thought of as coming from Baal. No, Elijah has set the stage to publicly discredit Baal. And the contrast is then played out in how the prophets of Baal and then 
Elijah call upon God. The prophets of Baal, notice in verse 26, we have the word limping again. There, after they've spent hours already from the morning to the noonday, crying out to Baal, it says that they are limping around the altar that they have made. Now, I think the, the writer here has chosen this word, and he's used it for Israel and here for the prophets to make the point. It's ridiculous for Israel to go back and forth between the two, and it's ridiculous for the prophets of Baal to think that fire is going to come from heaven when calling on Baal. It's a way to, to illustrate the, the, the silliness, the waffling back and forth between the real God and the false God. And the writer here in 1 Kings wants to say, this is, their attempt to call down fire is nonsense. And Elijah draws this out as it says in the text that he begins to, to mock them, verse 27. Look back there how he mocks the prophets of Baal. He says, cry aloud, for he is a god. That's, that's sarcasm. Um, and then he goes on to lay it out. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. And yes, that's that sort of relieving himself. That's what the prophet is saying. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. What is Elijah doing? Well, he's, he's poking holes in their theology. That the, the false gods of the ancient Near East, they were kind of just like bigger versions of humans. Deistic versions of, of what humans are. And so they behave like humans just in their, their godlike way. So they, they, they need muses and they need to, to set aside time for food and drink. And they get tired and they need rest. And he's pointing out that basically your God is just like you are. So how is he going to bring fire from heaven? He is no God. They've made up gods who behave like them because they're made up gods. They're not the revealed God. And so in verse 28, it would seem that the, the sequence has come to, to an, ex, an escalation. That as they feel the mockery of Elijah, that they know that time's running out on the clock for them. That eventually uh, it's going to be his turn. And so they raise the stakes. They raise their, their fervor and their activity. And what does it say in verse 28? They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. 450 bleeding prophets of Baal, limping and crying. What were they doing? Well, Baal is just like uh, their glorified version of themselves. And so Baal goes through cycles of ritual death where there, he experiences ritual death and then he's under the power of the, the God of death. And so then they start cutting themselves and offering blood, hopefully to get the attention of the God of death to release their God from ritual death in order that he might come and, and answer them. It's ridiculousness. They give their own blood. Not only does Baal fail to give them what they're asking for, 
He takes their blood. He's nothing more than a man-made idol. He doesn't exist, and yet he takes. As Phil Riken has said, idols abuse their worshipers. In the most serious way, we're to see the ridiculousness of idolatry here. And in verse 29, the writer joins with Elijah's taunting of the prophets of Baal. Look how he makes it very clear for us. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But he makes it very clear with the repeated no three times. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's like the wizard from the Wizard of Oz. He seems to be this great and mighty powerful wizard and then Toto pulls the curtain back and he's not what he seemed to be. The writer wants us to see that when Elijah pulls back the curtain on Baal, he's just not there. He's absent. And yet they try and they try. What does Elijah do? Elijah's actions are are much different, very intentional. He rebuilds the altar of God. So apparently at some point when God's people had taken possession of this land at Mount Carmel, there was an altar to the Lord that had been torn down. He rebuilds it, but he does so in a very intentional way. And it says there in the text, he chose 12 stones and he stacked them one on another. And it was to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But at this time, there's a separation between the southern and the northern kingdom. And it's the northern kingdom only has the 10 tribes and the southern kingdom, the two tribes. But he rebuilds the altar, not with 10 stones, but with 12. He reminds the people of their covenant with God, their covenant as a people. And then he pours water on the altar. He's reminding them of the covenant that they have with God. And then Elijah prays. He prays a pretty simple prayer. We could sum it up as, he says, God, make yourself known. Turn back their hearts. That's a good prayer that we can pray for, for those who are walking away from the church, from those who've grown up hearing the gospel and hearing God's word preached, those who once professed to be Christians or maybe now their Christianity is starting to blend to other things, or maybe they're being enticed by the cultural acceptability of a more progressive type of Christianity. It's like, Lord, make yourself known. Turn back their hearts. There's a simplicity in Elijah's approach. Contrasting his approach with the prophets of Baal, their approach is, Baal isn't hearing us. Let's do more stuff. More religious activity. Greater sacrifice. Then if we do this, God will, he'll surely respond in this way. And you and I, we need to be careful that we do not fall into that subtle track of thinking that, well, the more religious devotion that we show will demand that God provides what we're asking for. God will do things if we do more things. If we increase our activity, we increase the likeliness of being heard. That's not the way that those who are devoted to God pray. Those who 
have set their allegiance on the Lord and are uncompromising in that allegiance or are uncompromising to his word. And that's what we see in Elijah. And so he's, his prayer and his actions are all in line with what God has revealed about himself in his word. And then he prays in light of that. It's amazing that Elijah's ministry really, he does miraculous things at several points, but it really is a ministry of prayer. Taking what God has said about himself and revealed about himself in his law and then crying out to God on that basis. So here we see in Elijah, what is the backbone of his courageous faith? it's It's his prayer life. It's his prayer life that is the backbone of Elijah's courageous faith. And what is his prayer life? It is, well, it's a response to what God has already told him about himself and his ways. And then we come to the end. The fire falls in verses 38 through 40. There is a response to the fire that falls. And in this, we see consecration through sacrifice. Consecration through sacrifice. The fire means that Elijah's sacrifice has been accepted. That's what the significance of the fire is. God has accepted the sacrifice by consuming it with fire. There's three other occasions where God answers by fire. Leviticus 9, at the establishment of the tabernacle and Aaron as his sons, as priests to the Lord, there the sacrifice on the altar is consumed with fire. Then, in 1 Chronicles 21, David offers a sacrifice on Ornan's threshing floor, which is consumed by fire. That threshing floor is the future site of the temple. Then in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, David's son Solomon has built that temple. He prepares a sacrifice, and God answers by fire from heaven. In each of these fire events, they were times of consecration. Consecration means to set something apart or to be set apart. So it's at the consecrating of the tabernacle and the priesthood, the consecrating of the site of the temple, and then the consecration of the temple that God sends fire. And so here God sends his fire again to consecrate his people, to set them apart from the worshipers of Baal and to pull them out. When God sends the fire, he's saying, I'm the one true God. Come to me and be drawn back to my greatness, my goodness. I will not tolerate any rivals. It's me and no other gods. And though you've been teetering back and forth, limping between two opinions, today is the day that you draw near. Worship me. Be consecrated to me and me alone. And in this consecration set apart by fire, God receiving of the sacrifice, we get a glimpse of the pattern of the gospel. God consecrates his people, takes them out of the world by means of a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice on our behalf in order that we could draw near to the God who answers by fire. We become Christ's people by Christ's own sacrifice and then we live as Christ's people by Christ's sacrifice. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We live as Christ's people by Christ's sacrifice. It is the cross that makes us into consecrated disciples. And courageous faith is a result of a consecrated life. It's theology that leads to discipleship. Now the final verse is important. Verse 40. Let's read it again. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. It's important for the narrative because this helps us understand the ongoing conflict and the enmity between Jezebel and Elijah that will continue in the story. Jezebel is going to not allow Elijah to get away with this, is in her mind. She's going to make him pay for killing her prophets. Some of us in here, we come to that and say, Elijah, was that really the best evangelism? Here you have this great testimony to who your God is and that you speak for him. And then you go slaughter 440 plus prophets. Why does he do it? Deuteronomy 13 is the reason. This is what. God told his people to do that if prophets rose up among them who were false prophets leading them to another God that they were to be removed from their midst. Specifically, if it was among their brothers or sisters, their mothers or their fathers, that if they were trying to lead the heart of God's people away from God, that they were to kill them. This is the just penalty under the old covenant for those who lead Israelites astray. It's a judgment against the prophets of Baal, and it's a just judgment. They get what they deserve. If you don't find Elijah's actions just, could it be that you have too low of a view of the worship that is due to God? Remember, God is not an idea you play with, but a king to whom you submit. Our passage concludes with some who are consecrated and some who are condemned. If you are limping between God and something else, God calls you to come and be consecrated to him through his son Jesus. Amen? And has asked for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, as your people, we repent for the rival gods that we have allowed to remain in our hearts and, and lives and minds. Lord, we recognize that we would be consumed by your fire, but for 
the offering of your son in our place. And not only does it secure our place in your family, but the cross of Christ becomes by w- the means by which we live faithful, courageous lives for our Savior. So tonight we come to you, your cross and we come to Jesus and say, you are our Lord and our God, and it is for you and to you alone that we offer our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.